Well, from this text we see unity is something that is commanded of the saints of God. Especially where those saints have been gathered together in a a congregation, a local church like we have here. There must be unity. That was the, the context in which Paul's speaking. Unity amongst the saints in a church. And because we are all sinners, there is no church that is made up of anything other than a group of sinners. This is something that we need to be constantly reminded of. This duty of unity. We have to be not only taught it, not only have it explained, but then being, as Peter would say, being stirred up by way of constant reminder of of our duties in this regard. We have to be reminded. So I trust that over the last few months, the point has been made sufficiently clear. Unity must be a priority. That this is a very significant topic in God's Word. I've I've just given you some, some sprinkles of it here and there, but I trust that your eyes are sort of open now that you'll be able to see this topic throughout the Scriptures. And I hope that it's been made sufficiently clear that the kind of unity that, that we're expecting or that we should expect this side of eternity will come when we devote ourselves to the teaching of Scripture and when we exhibit Christ's love for His people. When that, when we are able to embody that and put forth Christ's love for His people from ourselves to His people, this type of unity will happen. This will come. Remember that it was in love that Christ humbled Himself. It was in love that He endured great hostility from sinners. It was out of love that He endured the agonies of the cross. It's in love this very moment that He makes intercession for us at His Father's right hand. It's out of love for us that He gives us His Spirit to nurture in us a spirit of love toward those whom He loves. And I believe that it will be in flaming hot love that He comes in the heavens to take us to Himself someday. He will come after us because He loves us. And as Christians, we are to be like Him. We've been indwelt by His Spirit, so we should be like Him. And we will answer in the judgment for how we treated our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because Christ takes our treatment of our brothers and sisters personally, as if we had done it to Him, our thoughts of one another. He says, why do you think that way about me? Our accusations against one another. Christ says, why do you accuse me? Just like He did with the Apostle Paul, right? Why do you persecute me? When He was persecuting His people. He takes it personally. But again, we're sinners, right? We, we err in many ways, very often without even knowing it. And so it is inevitable that divisions and disunity and discord and disagreements and contentions and controversies will arise even amongst the people of God. It's inevitable. We can't get past it. There's no way around it. It's going to happen. It's sad, but that is just the case. It's one of these things that, that compels us to long for heaven all the more. It simply is the case. Now last week, we let a man named James Durham give us some instructions on how to heal rather than deepen those types of divisions. This week, as promised, I've recruited the help of a man named Thomas Brooks. 
Thomas Brooks is typically a more well-known name uh, than James Durham in, in the, the circle of those Puritan authors that have come down through us to us through the, through the years that have been very helpful and fruitful. So I've invited Thomas Brooks to come and teach us about this matter. While James Durham was in Scotland, Brooks was in England. Brooks was born in 1608 before Durham, and he died in 1680, 22 years after Durham, at the age of 72. So he had a, a, much, a much longer, much more full life and ministry. And one of Brooks' more well-known works, most of you have probably heard of the title, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. That's one of his more well-known works. It was first published in 1676 when he was 68 years old only four years before his death. It went through nine reprints, eight of those in his lifetime. That is, eight reprints in four years because it was so well-known, so popular, so well-received and sought after. Now we have it in the form of of a Puritan paperback from the Banner of Truth. Uh, What I'm going to bring you is actually from an even more concise printing from Chapel Library. Get it for free that they've entitled, Remedies for Division Among God's People. Remedies for Division Among God's People. So, Brooks, now he's speaking to us from not only experience, but also age. And he opens up and applies the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 6.11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And Brooks says that one of the devil's schemes to divide or to conquer the saints is to divide them. He says one such scheme is by working them, that is the saints, working them first to be strange. Some of you say it's working so far. I'm the strangest person I know. He doesn't mean strange as as we would use the word strange. What he means is he he works in the saints to be uh, rather than tender and warm and affectionate toward one another. He causes us to be alienated in our affection so that we begin to look at each other not like friends anymore, but like strangers. He causes us to be strange, to be separated. And then it says, after being strange, then divide, break off into factions. Then be bitter and jealous. Why? Well, because now we're opponents. We're not friends anymore. We're not even strangers anymore. Now we're opponents. And he says, the devil will work in them to be bitter and jealous, then bite and devour. In other words, we act upon that bitterness and that jealousy. We, we go in for the attack. We start as brothers and sisters, then we become a little strange, then we become divided, then we become opponents, and then we attack. This is what... Satan does, by working them first to be strange, then divide, then be bitter and jealous, then bite and devour. And obviously we know once you have divided, it's easy to conquer. And Brooks says, quote, Our own woeful experience is too great a proof of this. He says, 67 years old, I've seen this over and over and over again. So knowing that this will be one of Satan's devices, Brooks offers 12 remedies. 12 remedies. 
Charles Spurgeon, you know, famously collected many of Brooks' writings into a, a book, some of his more encouraging writings into a little book that Spurgeon entitled Smooth Stones from Ancient Brooks. Well, th- because these remedies are given to be used in times of sickness and division, very often these remedies will expose our sin. They will expose our, our great need for personal repentance and reformation. We might call these potentially rough or even sharp and yet still useful stones from ancient brooks. Twelve remedies. Now as we go through these, I'll I'll move quickly. I want you to notice how many times he uses the words dwell and consider and focus. So much of this maintaining of unity is rooted in the heart and the mind thinking about, meditating upon, considering what God has said. What is true? What do I see and experience and know about my brothers and sisters and about God? So number one, the first remedy, dwell upon one another's graces. Dwell upon one another's graces. I'll quote Brooks. The first remedy against this device of Satan is to dwell more upon one another's graces than upon one another's weaknesses and infirmities. Graces, you know, are all of the the virtues and qualities and gifts that are produced in us and through us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, Things like the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, etc., but also the various gifts that He might give, gifts of teaching, gifts of administration, gifts of service, all, any kind of, of wonderful character quality that we find in its fullness in Christ, worked by the Holy Spirit in another believer, Brooks says, dwell upon that, not their infirmities and their weaknesses. Dwell upon these things, he says. I think Philippians 4.8 would be a good, a good instructive text here. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, and I'm going to insert in one another, think on these things. Take time in your day or even in your praying. Imagine this, that you would think about the very best qualities in your brothers and sisters in Christ. Dwell upon it. You you say, well, it would be kind of weird for me to sit and think about Somebody else. No, dwell upon their graces. Maybe even name them for their best graces. Designate them in your mind. Oh, that's the brother who excels in blank. Or, oh, that's the sister who excels in this. Rather than, well, I don't want to talk to him because he's this way. And, well, I can't say this around her because she's this way. Don't think about the weakness. Don't think about the infirmities. Dwell upon the graces. Brooks makes reference to 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. With love and in love for one another, some sins are best overlooked, at least for a time. They, they may be short-lived sins. They may be only, only brief stumblings. And how humiliated would we be if we stood and gawked and humiliated a brother or sister because of some brief little failing Overlook it. When he made that reference, it made me think about Peter. All of the references that Peter makes to Noah 
and the time of the flood. And I began to wonder if maybe Peter had Noah in mind when he said, love covers a multitude of sins. Because you remember Noah, an otherwise godly man on the earth. After the flood, he's lying drunk and naked in his tent. You've got one son who comes along and his choice is to gape and stare and make fun of his father's sinful nakedness and to attract everybody else. Come look. Come look at our father. When you had two other sons who chose literally not to look at the sin but to walk backward and to cover it over. Why? Because they wanted to love and honor their father. Their love covered his multitude of sins. They probably knew this is not normative for our Father. We're not going to gawk and gape and draw attention to this. And this is how we should want to be with our brothers and sisters. Dwell upon their graces. Remember that John tells us that it is from the fullness of Christ that we have all received grace upon grace. And so when we behold the graces in one another, we're actually seeing little glimmers, little slivers of Christ Himself coming through and our brothers and sisters, if we, if we want to behold Christ, then dwell upon one another's graces. Brooks says, Tell me, saints, doth God not look more upon His people's graces than upon their weaknesses? Is this not how God is? He points to James 5.11. You've heard of the patience of Job. James didn't say, You've heard of the self-justification of Job, how he acted in his... No, he doesn't. The Holy Spirit says, you've heard of the patience of Job. The same with Noah. You never hear of Noah's drunkenness again. What do we hear? He was a mighty preacher, a preacher of righteousness. He says, this is God's practice, to dwell upon the graces and not the infirmities. And then he says, quote, make it the top of your glory to be like your heavenly Father. Be like God and dwell upon one another's graces. That's the first one. Remedy number two. They're not all the same length. Don't get nervous. Remedy number two. Consider that union makes most for your own security. Union makes most for your own security. Brooks. The second remedy against this device of Satan is to solemnly consider that love and union make most for your own safety and security. We shall be invincible if we are inseparable. Well, just think about it. Again, consider, of the many things that we share in common, there are those many things that separate us from the world and, as it were, put a target on all of our backs to attract the persecution of the world, those who are not our brothers and sisters. We're going to have no outward comfort in this life if we don't get it from one another, the people that God has placed around us. There's security and comfort and strength in that. I was thinking this morning about ladies what the Bible calls women to be and to do, this world hates it. This world hates it. They will not tell you to be what God tells you to be. They will not prescribe it. You're not gonna, YouTube is not going to tell you how to do it. Facebook, Twitter, they're, they're not saying women pursue godliness, pursue being a wife and a mother and a homemaker and raising up children unto the Lord. They're not saying that. So if you're going to go there to find comfort, you're going to find nothing. There's no comfort there, no security there. But then when you come amongst amongst the people of God, you're going to find older, godly women who say, yes, you are on the right path. And here is the encouragement. And here is the motivation. And it can be done. And God's ways are best. There's security there. There's comfort there. 
Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12 says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Unity gives us that external as well as, I would say, a, 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 an internal comfort that comes from Christian fellowship and camaraderie. Now, there are some who would say, well, all I need is God. I just need the Lord. Well, if by that you mean that you have no need for the God-given support and encouragement of the body of Christ, what you're saying is, I'm actually more spiritual than God says that I am. Because God gave His church for a reason. He knows that we can't do it alone. And one of the ways that God reminds us of His nearness and His arm of support is through the nearness and support of the saints. We have security. He says, consider it. Just stop and think with sober, sanctified realism about how encouraging and strengthening it is to be reminded that you are not alone, even under the sun, in your walk with the Lord, you're not alone. You're not by yourself. There are other people who think like you and believe like you and, and recognize the, the realities and the truths of God's Word. God is saving people and gathering a people. You're not all by yourself. Oh, how we need one another. And God knows that is the case. The church, this, this thing that we call the church, that was God's idea. We didn't come up with that. He knows that. So it's best for our security. Consider that. Remedy number three. Dwell upon those commands of God that require love. Dwell upon those commands of God that require love. Brooks says the third remedy against this device of Satan is to dwell upon those commands of God that do require you to love one another. Oh, when your hearts begin to rise against each other, charge the commands of God upon your hearts and say to your souls, Oh, our souls, hath not the eternal God commanded you to love them that love the Lord? And is it not life to obey and death to rebel? Dwell upon the commands. Remember, the soil of all of the necessary qualities that will make for unity is love. Love undergirds them all. Love is not something that we wait to fall into. That's what our, our world says. You fall in love. Whoops! That's not what the Bible says. The Bible commands. God commands love. Both the duties of love and the affectionate fondness that accompanies the duties are commanded. It's not a feeling only, nor is it duty only. It's both. He says, dwell upon the commands. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loves another is, has fulfilled the law. Let brotherly love continue. Love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
And this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Beloved, if so God loved us, we also ought to love one another. Is there any other commandment in the Scripture that is multiplied as many times as the commandment to love one another? I can't think of one. He says, dwell upon that reality. Think, 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 meditate, consider, and come back to it time and time and again. God has commanded me to love my brothers and sisters. He says, oh, dwell much upon these precious commands that your love may be inflamed one to another. Oftentimes our love for one another is not inflamed. Because we don't dwell upon the commandments of God. We say, love one another, got that. Okay, give me something else. Give me some, give me some good meaty something. You know, something I can really sink my teeth into. And Christ says, love one another. Okay, got that. But, but now what else? Christ says, well, you've got to love one another. Well, I, I get that, but can we not? He says, no. No, you can't. Because you don't love one another. Once you love one another, then we'll go to Christian living 102. But 101 is love one another. Remedy number four, focus on your points of agreement. Focus on your points of agreement. Brooks says the fourth remedy against this device of Satan is to dwell more upon these choice and sweet things wherein you agree than upon those things wherein you differ. Think about it. Amongst true Christians... Our agreement, where we agree, is in the most glorious, clear, undisputed, majestic realities in all of the universe. Why would we want to think of anything else than these things? Why would that not already be the focal point of all of our thoughts? Why would we give in to, or why would we ever desire to sit around dwelling on matters that are not as glorious, not as clear, and often disputed? Brooke says, you agree in the greatest and weightiest concerning God, Christ, the Spirit, the Scripture. You differ only in those points that have been long disputed or disputable amongst men of greatest piety and parts. Think about that. Disagreements among true believers today, if you think about it, they are the exact same disagreements that true believers have been debating and disagreeing upon since the very beginning, hundreds and hundreds of years. Do we think we are the generation that by arguing these things again, that we will convince the world, we'll, we'll, we'll rid the world of all disagreements? I, I, I hope you don't think that. It's not useful or helpful to try to reinvent the will of theology in every generation. We know that. We don't have to come along and say, all right, let's start from scratch. Let's figure this thing out. No, we don't, we don't have to do that. We've been handed down through the ages from the Scriptures, the teachings of Christianity. It's not helpful. That, that, that's a waste of time. But it's equally unhelpful when every generation comes along and digs up old wheels and reignites the argument as to which lug pattern is actually best on this wheel. We're going to argue about this again? 
Now, that doesn't mean that we don't settle our own convictions. It means we need to realize we're probably not going to settle these matters on this side of eternity. And it's definitely not worth alienating our brothers and sisters over long disputed issues or slandering them or using inflammatory language about them. It's not worth that. Just focus on what we agree upon. That's what he says. Focus on points of agreement. Remedy number five. Consider that God is the God of peace. Consider that God is the God of peace. Brooks says the fifth remedy against this device of Satan is to solemnly consider that God first delights to be styled the God of peace. Romans 15.33 May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Romans 16.20 The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Secondly, Christ delights to be styled the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6, His name shall be called Prince of Peace. And thirdly, the Spirit is the Spirit of Peace. Galatians 5, 22, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So think about that. He says, consider it, that God is a God of peace. Think deeply on what it means that God is the God of peace, Christ is the Prince of Peace, the Spirit is the Spirit of Peace. And then ask, what should characterize the people of that God? What what should those people look like? The answer is peace. They should be a people of peace. Consider that God is the God of peace. Remedy six. Connected to that one. Keep up your own peace with God. Keep up your own peace with God. He says the sixth remedy against this device of Satan is to make more care and conscience of keeping up your peace with God. Very near to the point that Durham made about recognizing your own responsibility for repentance. Keep your own garden is what he's saying. So now we have two witnesses who say that in matters of controversy, worry about your own self and worry about your own relationship with the Lord first and foremost. Labor to maintain your own clear conscience before God and you won't have time to worry about everybody else's conscience before God. It's so freeing to realize you're not the Holy Spirit. Men, you're not the Holy Spirit at your house. Parents, you're not the Holy Spirit over your children. That's so freeing. You teach, you instruct, you do what you're commanded to do. But I can't... Alter someone's conscience before God. I can't settle that. They have to do that. He says, Ah, Christians, I am afraid that your remissness herein is that which hath occasioned much of that sourness, bitterness, and divisions that be among you. With the amount of time that some saints spend on the internet digging up old controversies, there's no way they have a clear conscience before God. If they do, it's an ill-informed conscience. God owns your time. You need to understand that. God owns your time. All of your time is owed to Him. Every every moment of every day is to be spent in edification and growing and learning and advancing His kingdom and His glory. So hopefully your conscience would be pricked with how you use your time. But very often our conscience is even if we've not recognized it yet, our conscience is not clear before God. We, We might say something's not right. That, that thing that you can't put a, a label on is your conscience is not clear. So you've got to figure out why it's not clear. 
But rather than dealing with why our consciences aren't clear, very often we, we think this way, well, I'll just draw God's attention away from my guilty conscience with some duties over here. I'll do something else to make it right before God. We, and those duties usually come in the form of more wrangling, more disputing, more arguing. God, don't, don't pay any attention over, to my sins over here. Look at how much I'm arguing with your children and debating and, 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 all, and the like. You're not keeping your own peace with God. Brooks says, if we make it our business to keep up our league with God, God will make it His work and His glory to maintain our peace with men. Keep your own peace with God. God will worry about other, other men, your relationship with other men. He says, but if men make light of keeping up their peace with God, it is just with God to leave them to a spirit of pride, envy, passion, contention, division, and confusion. Keep up your own peace with God. Remedy 7. Dwell much upon the close relation between you. Brooks says the seventh remedy against this device of Satan is to dwell much upon that near relation and union that is between you and your brethren. Think about the nearness of the relationship. Genesis 13, 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between me and you, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Why not, Abram? Because we're kinsmen. We're brothers. We're family. There shouldn't be strife between family. There sh that shouldn't exist between people so nearly related. Well, are we not spiritual kinsmen? Does the Bible not say we are spiritual brothers and sisters? Do we not have the same father, the same elder brother, the same family seal in the Holy Spirit? Then strife should not exist between those so nearly related. He uses another metaphor commenting on Ephesians 5.30. We are members of His body, body parts. Brooks says, Shall the members of the natural body be serviceable and useful to one another? And shall the members of this spiritual body cut and destroy one another? That doesn't make any sense. Is it against the law of nature for the natural members to cut and slash one another? Isn't that odd? You find out someone's secretly cutting themselves or someone attempts suicide or actually succeeds suicide. Doesn't everyone recognize that's not natural? That's not normal? This is not what human beings ought to be doing to their own selves? He says, then is it not much more against the law of nature and of grace that the members of Christ's glorious body do so? Cut, devour, bite one another? Dwell upon this, he says. Dwell upon this near relation. Think about how God has joined us together. Think about regeneration. Think about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Think about the amazing grace of adoption. Think about all the metaphors that are used in Scripture of our union with Christ and then recognize all of that is true of your brothers and sisters. There is a nearness that we share with brothers and sisters in Christ that we do not share with anyone else in the world who is not a believer. A biological child who becomes a Christian is now closer to me than those who are not because of that relation, that spiritual bond. And he says, dwelling upon this is a remedy against a divisive spirit. Dwell upon that close relation. Remedy eight. Dwell upon the miseries of discord. Dwell upon the miseries 
of discord. He says, the eighth remedy against this device of Satan is to dwell upon the miseries of discord. Very much like the point Durham made. I think it was his first one. Recognize the dreadful plague of division. Think about it. Dwell upon it. We don't, we don't like to do this. Give me something happy to think about all the time. And he says, sometimes you need to think about how dreadful a plague, how, how full of misery this is. Our hearts are normally lazy and hard. We are typically unmoved and unconcerned. The reality is that many of you, after this sermon is finished, you will not think about this topic again. It, it, it just, it, it'll just go, go on. It'll, it'll fly away. It'll be plucked away. Because our hearts are very often hard. We're lazy. We don't want to dwell. We don't want to settle and think upon things But now Brooks and Durham have both compelled us that we need to stop and think about just how awful it is that Christians would bite and devour one another. Think about the miseries of discord. Brooks says this, Ah, how doth the name of Christ and the way of Christ suffer by the discord of saints? Many there are entering upon the ways of God, or many, many that are entering upon the ways of God are hindered and saddened, and the mouths of the wicked opened, and their hearts hardened against God and His ways by the discord of His people. Remember this, the disagreement of Christians is the devil's triumph. What a sad thing this is that Christians should give Satan cause to triumph. That's just one misery. Dwell upon it. Dwell upon that. The disagreement of Christians is the devil's triumph. Remedy number nine. Be first in seeking peace. Be first in seeking peace, he says. The ninth remedy against this device of Satan is to surely consider that it is no disparagement to you to be the first in seeking peace and reconcilement, but rather an honor to you that you've begun to seek peace. Just like Durham said, do that which, or do what you can to recommend unity. Listen, we need to hear this. Because this is the opposite of what we think naturally. This is the opposite of what our world would tell us. You are not a loser if you seek peace first. You haven't lost if you're the first to go after peace. It's not a display of weakness. It's not crying uncle. It's not giving up. That's a sign of wisdom and maturity to seek peace first. We're not children playing king of the hill. We're saints of the Most High God who should be seeking to outdo one another in showing honor. We should be preferring others above ourselves. We should be following the pattern of the most precious and glorious one of all the universe who washed the feet of His disciples. Think about it. Is God disparaged? Is God Is it His dishonor? Is it a weakness in God that He sought peace with us first? Do we hear that God came to us? Do we hear, and this is love, not that you have loved God, but that God loved you? 
that God came after you, you were wallowing in your blood, God came to you and said, live. When you hear those texts, you are at enmity with God. He sent His Son to reconcile you to Himself. Do you hear all of those things and say, what a weak God. Boy, He really caved in there. No, you don't. No, we glory in that. That's, that is our salvation. Do we look at God in Christ reconciling the world to Himself and say, oh, He should have stood His ground. Now He just looks like a pushover with no convictions. Of course we don't. Brooks says, It is not a base, low thing, but a godlike thing. Though we are wronged by others, yet to be the first in seeking after peace. Such actings will speak out much of God with a man's spirit. So be the first to seek for peace. Go after it. That's what our God has done. Remedy number 10. Make the word the infallible rule for agreement. Make the Word, the Scriptures, the infallible rule for agreement. He says, the tenth remedy against this device of Satan is for saints to cooperate, to join together and walk together in the ways of grace and holiness as far as they do agree, making the Word their only touchstone and judge of their actions. Is this not what we have said? It must be doctrinal harmony. The rule of our unity is Isaiah 8.20, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. That's our rule. With the psalmist, we say, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Apart from the Word, we stumble and stagger and wander away. But around the Word, we're drawn together. This is our infallible rule for agreement. Nothing less than the Word of God will serve to truly unite us in those things which are most important and essential. Nothing less than the very Word of God. At the same time, we cannot go beyond the Word in order to find agreement. To go beyond what God has said, only in order to find further agreement, more than what God has said in His Word, that is a type of unity that is not Christian. You've gone straight through Christian unity onto something different. Very often our, our private interpretations and applications are taken for the Word, and then we make that the standard for our agreement. One illustration that I've used is, is the text. I will put no unclean thing before my eyes. Doctrine. Do not put unclean things before your eyes. Okay? Some people might say, okay, then application. At my home, we will not watch movies with anything above, beyond, however you're thinking of the rating, anything beyond a G rating, general audience, nothing further. Because the text says, I will not put any unclean thing before my eyes. At a home down the street, that family might say, the text says to put no unclean thing before our eyes. We will watch no movies. We don't even have to worry about the, the ratings anymore. It's all gone. Just put it all out. You don't even have to worry about it. You've made a, you've made a curb outside of the curb, outside of the sidewalk, to make sure you don't even get close to the road. Now, in their home, is that application useful, helpful? Uh, is it just fine? Absolutely, by all means. 
Is that what the Word says? No, that's not what the Word says. You cannot hold somebody to that conviction, to that standard that you have added. Now you can, you see what I'm saying? There are applications that we might often take further. And that's fine if you want to abide by that, but you can't hold other people to that and then say, and by golly, that's the standard. That's the Christian standard. I'm going to say, you're going to have to show me in the text. In the text. Nothing less than the Word, but nothing more than the Word. Again, you're saying, I'm holier than God. When you add to the Word of God, Brooke says, make not your dim light your notions, your fancies, your opinions, the judge of men's actions, but still judge by rule and plead, it is written. Make the word the infallible rule for agreement. Remedy number 11, be much in self-judging. Be much in self-judging. He says the eleventh remedy against this device of Satan is to be much in self-judging. And he references 1 Corinthians 11.31. For if we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. He says, ah, were Christian, Christians' hearts more taken up in judging and condemning themselves, they would not be so apt to judge and censure others and to carry it so sourly and bitterly toward others who differ from them. Still quoting, there are no souls in the world that are so fearful to judge others as those that do most judge themselves. There are none in the world that tremble to think evil of others, to speak evil of others, or to do evil of others as those that make it their business to judge themselves. Judge yourself. Be much in self-judging. And then he gives... Numerous texts to meditate on. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you use, you shall be judged. And with what measure you use, it shall be measured to you again. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Let not him that eats despise him that eats not. And let not him which eats not judge him that eats. For God has received him. But why do you judge your brother? What he's saying is, why, why are you stiff-arming some, somebody that God has welcomed? Paul's confused about that. God's welcomed him, but you can't? Again, because we often think ourselves more holy than God. Speak not evil one of another, brethren... He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Who are you that judges another? Who are you that judges another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Be much in self-judgment. And you won't be judging other people quite as much. And then remedy number 12. Labor to be clothed with humility. Labor to be clothed with humility. The twelfth remedy, Brooks says, against this device of Satan is this. Above all, labor to be clothed with humility. And he quotes 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And I couldn't help but include more of what he says. This is, this is pure Puritan Gold. These, I'm going to give you some smooth stones from ancient brooks now. This is an advertisement for humility. This is an encouragement to increase in this grace. Listen to what he says. Longer quotes now. Humility 
can weep over other men's weaknesses and joy and rejoice over their graces. Obviously, the opposite would be pride, rejoicing and joying over their weaknesses. Humility weeps at other men's weaknesses and joy and rejoices over their graces. Humility honors those that are strong in grace and puts two hands under those that are weak in grace. Ah, did Christians more abound in humility, they would be less bitter, froward and sour. They would be more gentle, meek and sweet in their spirits and practices. Humility will make a man have high thoughts of others and low thoughts of himself. It will make a man see much glory and excellency in others and much baseness and sinfulness in himself. It will make a man see others rich and himself poor, others strong and himself weak, others wise and himself foolish. Humility will make a man excellent at covering others' infirmities, at recording their gracious services and at delighting in their graces. It makes a man joy in every light that outshines his own and every wind that blows others good. Can you imagine a Christian who rejoiced when they looked at at the light and the gift and the grace of of other Christians and they rejoiced? As as I've said, just encourage them, go, brother, go. I'll, I'll never be where you are, but go, go, go. That's humility. Rejoicing in every light that outshines his own. A humble soul is more willing to say, listen to this, heaven is that man's more than mine. And Christ is that Christian's more than mine. And God is their God in covenant more than mine. You know what he's saying. All were Christians more humble there will be less fire and more love among them than now is. We should all labor to be clothed with humility. We we know that this was and is the chief staple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Humility. Brooks says, What folly and madness is it in those whose way of a hundred miles lies ninety-nine together, yet will not walk so far together? because they cannot go the other mile together. Yet such is the folly and madness of many Christians in these days. I fear God will whip them into a better temper before He hath done with them. He will break their bones and pierce their hearts, but He will cure them of this malady. You see the picture, two men walking. They've got a hundred miles to walk, and they know that at mile marker 99, they must go their separate ways. And they say, nope, I can't walk with you. Well, why? Well, when we get to mile marker 99, we can't walk together anymore, so I just won't walk. I'll just walk alone. Folly and madness, he says. And we know that God is too good not to cure this in His people. He will cure it. Let me give Brooks the final words. For a close, remember this, that your life is short Your duties, many. Your assistance, great. And your reward, sure. Therefore, think not. Hold on. Hold up in ways of well-doing. And heaven shall make amends for all.
As they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it. And gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Christ broke the bread. And in an image, in a picture, He was saying, This is what I am for you. He was saying, In my broken body, there is life for you. When Christ hung on the cross, He was not simply enduring some painful infliction on His flesh by Roman soldiers. He was not simply enduring the jeering and the mocking of His Jewish kinsmen. He was not simply enduring the humility of hanging naked before His peers and having people walk by and wag their heads and especially among the Jews say, There goes another one cursed. See how he hangs upon a tree. That was, that, was, that was a small thing compared to what was really being poured out and that was the very vengeance and wrath of God the Almighty upon Him for our sins. If that has been poured out, this is what we remember at the table, if that has been poured out, there is none left. There is no vengeance, there is no fury left for the people of God. There is no condemnation for the people of God. So the table of the Lord is a time of great rejoicing for all who are in Christ. So think on that, consider that, and then we'll come to the table together.